begin rightly this morning, I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And then I want you to kind of hold your finger there and turn backwards to the book of Acts chapter 2. According to the Jewish calendar, today marks the holiday of Pentecost. And Pentecost is of significance to us as Christians because that's effectively um, where the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the Church of Jesus because of his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension in Acts chapter 2. That happens on the day of Pentecost. And in some ways, that is tremendously appropriate because Pentecost was a celebration of the first fruits of an impending harvest. And that means that what happened in Acts chapter 2 was just the beginning. And it seems tremendously appropriate as we're in the midst of this series looking at the Holy Spirit's work for us today on this anniversary, thousands of years later on the, of the day of Pentecost, to just flip back and remember very quickly. And so I don't want to pull your attention to um, everything in Acts chapter 2. In fact, we just glanced at it last week as we were looking at something else. But I want to draw your attention to the statement that Peter makes when he opens up the explanation of what everybody is seeing and hearing. And so notice what he said in verse 14 of Acts 2. But Peter Standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, saying, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For those people, the ones who were speaking in languages they did not know, are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And listen to this prophecy given by Joel hundreds of years earlier. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes." that great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So notice he says, what you're seeing now is what Joel said would come. And what's unique about Joel's prophecy is not that the Spirit is working, is not the presence of prophecy, vision, or dreams. Right? You can read the story of Joseph and encounter dreams. You can read Ezekiel and encounter visions Joel himself is a prophet, and what we just read is a prophecy. What is unique and what is new that Peter announces the inauguration of on that day of Pentecost a thousand years ago is the pouring out of the Spirit broadly, right? Available not just on kings that are anointed by God or prophets who are called by God, but on servants of household, on men and women, on the old and the young 
right? In fact, he says at the end of this sermon, and what you see here in the promise of the Holy Spirit is available you for you, Judeans, and for your descendants, and for all, anywhere, who will call upon the name of the Lord. So it's appropriate, then, that we find ourselves, I would say accidentally, because it wasn't my intention, but unaccidentally, uh, here on this Pentecost anniversary, talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy. And so, if you would turn back to 1 Corinthians 14, I'll give us a little bit of traction, and then we'll read together, we'll pray, and then we'll continue. Here in chapter 14, in fact, we're going to read the same passage we looked at last week. Paul explains the gifts of tongues and the gift of prophecy in contrast with one another. And his purpose is primarily to lay a framework for using these God-given supernatural gifts in a way that benefits the church instead of divides it, in a way that serves the church instead of becomes a posture of status, in a way that doesn't just look amazing, but actually accomplishes the purpose it was given for. And so he pits prophecy against tongues here, not because tongues is the worst gift and because prophecy is the best gift, but because prophecy is naturally and totally for the sake of the church, for the building up of the church, whereas tongues is private and without interpretation doesn't accomplish that. Okay. So, <laughs> with that being said, I'd like to read again like we did last week through chapter 14, um, the first 25 verses, and then I want to um, actually continue on a little bit further to verse 33, just to get a little bit of extra data. Chapter 14, verse 1. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give a distinct note, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If you with your tongue utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you'll be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning, but if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. 
I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law, it's written by a people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all, is, if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn or a lesson or a revelation or a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn and someone to interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent so you can all prophesy one by one, so that you may, be, uh, so that you may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophet are subject to the prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Let's pray. Father, as we've done um, every Sunday during this series, we want to affirm again um, that if you have given good gifts to the church, then we desire to receive them and to use them. We know that some of these things uh, lie beyond the purview of our understanding, that they come with mystery and they also often come with misapplication, with fraud, and with abuse. But we do desire to have everything you have for us. And not just to have it as some sort of sign or symbol, Lord, but because we need it. Because we need to be grown. We need to be edified. We need to be encouraged and built up, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to understand this gift that you would give it to those that you desire to give it to, and that it would operate in love for the benefit of us all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It might have been easier to just pick out the prophecy sections in this chapter and just read those. Maybe even advisable, considering we read this whole passage and talked about all the tongues portion last week. However... I felt it was important for us to read it the whole way through because, again, we need to keep the things that Paul says about prophecy here in the context of where and why he says it. This is not an expose on prophecy to explain the gift of prophecy. It is a comparison and contrast to make a deeper point of be devoted to use whatever gifts you have to love and build up the body. However... It is still one of the longest explanations of the gift of prophecy we find in the New Testament. So whereas in other places where we just get labels like Agabus in chapter 11 of Acts, who's just labeled a prophet, or the four daughters of Philip who prophesy, or those types of statements, here we have quite a bit of content to work through. Now, tongues is a challenging gift 
because it is different, because it is strange, because it is weird, and as Paul points out here, because it is easily misunderstood and misused. Prophecy is a difficult gift because that word has a broad semantic meaning. What I mean is, within the Bible, the word prophet and the word prophecy and the word prophesy have a range of ideas that are not equivalent all the way across. And if we misunderstand that, then we we will be left scratching our heads because things will seem incongruent. For example, in the Old Testament, In Deuteronomy chapter 18, through Moses, Israel is promised that God will continue to send them prophets like Moses, and that they will speak for him. However, knowing that false prophets will come, he says, here are the criteria for a prophet, and he gives a handful of them. One, if he contradicts what you already know to be true and calls you to worship another god but Yahweh, he is a false prophet, no matter what trappings or trimmings come with him. So it had to align with what was already revealed. It had to be biblical, if you will. It had to fit what was already said. Two, if that prophecy involved a foretelling of the future, as prophecy sometimes, but not always does, and it comes to pass, that's a significant validation. And I'm not talking about the generic, could apply to anything or anybody horoscope prophecy. I'm talking about very direct and specific prophecy as we see it in the Old Testament. He says, if it doesn't come true, don't fear him. And then finally, if his prophecy doesn't come true, and you recognize him as a false prophet, put him to death. Now when we get to the New Testament, instead of finding this gift of prophecy that we're reading about here, being on par with the Old Testament prophets, on par with the reality of Scripture, being the very word of God, thus saith the Lord with authority. As well as, in contrast to this reality, where it is so high stakes that it becomes a life or death representation or misrepresentation of God. Instead, what we find in the New Testament is a gift that is revelatory. It involves actual revelation from God, but does not carry that level of authority, nor does it carry that level of consequence. Now, how do I know that? One is because notice what he says. uh, Says, let's see, where do I want it? Verse No, I just read it. There we go. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. Okay. Now, two things. One, when we read that in English, it reads like, let two or three prophets speak, and let the other prophets weigh what is said. But it doesn't seem likely to most commentators that that's what Paul means. What he means is when somebody gives a prophecy, it should be weighed by the church. This lines up with the two other places that this gift is mentioned in the New Testament in this way. We can look at both of them in turn. The first one is in 1 Thessalonians. 
Thessalonians can be a hard book to find. Um, interestingly, all the New Testament books that begin with T are right next to each other, so that helps. If you find Timothy or Titus, you're close. Um, but listen to what Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise, or some translations read, reject prophecies, but test everything and hold fast to what is good. So, in the Old Testament, what are you to do with a prophecy? You are to make sure the prophet represents God, and then after that, you have to listen. In fact, that's how Deuteronomy 18 closes. The one who speaks for me, he who does not listen to him does not listen to me, says the Lord. But here it says, test the prophecies, and the word here for testing, just like in Corinthians, means to sift. And it says, hold fast to what is good. Okay, So that means that this prophetic gift falls under the confines of testing, and that it even has to be sifted and go, this seems like it's from the Lord. Maybe this not so much. Let me show you another place where we see this exact same idea. Here, not from the Apostle Paul, but from the Apostle John. Here in 1 John chapter 4, listen to what John says. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay? So again, notice here, although he uses the language of test the spirits, his concern is prophecy. Test the spirits. Why? Because there are many false prophets. He continues, he says, By this you'll know the Spirit of God, that every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit, the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Now, I want to fast forward and just pick up another piece because I don't want to turn here, back here again. But listen to what he says in verse 6. He says, We, speaking of him and his uh, fellow apostles, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So what is it to be discerning there, the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, true prophet and false prophet? Does it listen to the apostles? And so here we see the prophets prophets are subservient to the apostles. And they're also subservient to the weighing of the church. Now just one more nail in the coffin. At the very end of 1 Corinthians 14, I want you to notice what it says here. Verse 37. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet, or even spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing you are the command of the Lord. Do you you see what he says there? He says, what I've just written in 1 Corinthians, I speak with the authority of Jesus. Okay, he makes an authoritative statement. He doesn't say, and you know what, this letter, you should weigh it as well. That's not what he says, right? He says, recognize that what I have given you is as an apostle, is authoritative. And then notice what he says in verse 38. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, again... The gift of prophecy here is revelatory, but it is not authoritative. In fact, it's something that needs to be tested and sifted, both against Scripture, the words of the prophets with a capital P, if you will, from the Old Testament, as well as the words from the apostle, like Paul and John point to. And it also needs to be tested by the community. Now, I would suggest to you that this has to be the way to understand the gift of prophecy 
not just because of what we've looked like here, which are the prescriptive passages of Scripture. They tell us what to do with a prophet, but also the descriptive ones. And so let me just show you one more place. And now that we've cleared the air, then we can actually ask, okay, so what is prophecy and what is it good for? Okay. One more place. This from the book of Acts chapter 21. In fact, we'll pick up a little bit in chapter 20, but near the end. Actually, let's pick up in 21, verse 3. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, that's the church, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, Now hold that and move down to verse 8. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, the seven from Acts chapter 6, the deacons, and stayed with him. Look at verse 9. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying with them many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Okay, notice a couple of things here. One, there is a barrage here of prophecy all pointing in the same direction. Everywhere Paul goes, somebody pulls Paul aside and says, Hey, you're heading to Jerusalem and it's going to go bad for you. Right? It happens in this town and then you know, 50 miles away in this town and as he gets closer. And then Agabus, who rightly is recorded as predicting a famine back in Acts chapter 11 and sparing the church great harm because they prepared for what was coming. He comes and like an Old Testament prophet, acts out a prophecy by taking Paul's belt, wrapping it around his hands and saying, this is what is in your destiny. Now, either Paul here resists the words of a prophet that are authoritative and disobeys God by continuing to Jerusalem, or something else is going on here. On top of that, the words of Agabus are significant because this is what he says again in verse 11. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul is bound in Jerusalem, but not by the Jews. The Jews are too busy trying to kill him. It's the Romans who put him in shackles. Okay. What I would suggest to you is what we were seeing here is truly revelatory. Right? They are right. It is truly the gift of prophecy that is being operated here. But it is also one that needs to be sifted and weighed and is one that is not totally and completely authoritative. In fact, it seems to me that the whole community comes to realize that the point of this revelation is not so that Paul wouldn't go. Because after pleading with him not to go, what does it say again in verse 14? Since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We don't want this for you, but 
it seems like the Lord does. Okay. And we could look at a handful of other places and see that same thing. And so when we deal with the gift of prophecy here, we are not talking about a man who comes along and says, just like Jesus and Isaiah, I speak for the Lord, thus says the Lord, and writes a new book of the Bible. Or leads us into new ways. Paul says that God has given us uh, these scriptures, and they are profitable for every good work. They're sufficient. Peter says the same thing. But the gift of prophecy, even though it is not authoritative like Scripture is, is still valuable. And like I said, it is still revelatory. It involves God revealing to someone something that they did not know for the sake of the church. But we can go farther. Because back in... 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul tells us more. Again, remember, he's doing this in contrast, but think of how beneficial for our understanding verse 3 is of chapter 14. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people. Remember, tongues is speaking to God. Prophecy is to people. Okay? Speaks to the people for their upbuilding and their encouragement and their consolation. So it is a word. It involves a level of revelation. God, through his spirit, like we saw with Agabus, speaks to and through for comforting, for encouragement, and for upbuilding. Now, it would be convenient if we could just stop there and go, oh, phew, if anyone comes to me and says, I think the spirit wants me to tell you, and it's bad news, it's not from God. We would love to be able to just filter all out, all the gloom and doom, and forget about that stuff and say that has nothing to do with Jesus. But as we saw with Paul, not all prophecy is good or easy news. So what Paul says here is incomplete, and I would suggest it's pretty easy to know that that's the case, because look at what he says about 20 verses later. He says in verse 24, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that he is really among you. Okay? Conviction, exposing, and accountability are all exposed here as part of the gift of prophecy as well. Okay. And so what we are talking about here is when somebody, through the power and the gift of the Holy Spirit, speaks to the church what he believes the Lord is wanting to say to the church for the benefit of the church. And like we see with Agabus, that sometimes includes preempting future events. I feel like the Lord is telling me that this is going to happen. Okay. The Holy Spirit says that, right, uh, that, uh, that this is what's coming our way. However, it also includes Words of encouragement, exhortation, and edification. Now, can you encourage apart from the gift of prophecy? Yeah, Paul told us in chapter 12, there is the gift of encouragement. So what's different here about prophecy? It's that revelatory aspect. And so the value of this gift is because it reminds us that God is alive and still speaking. 
Not in a way that we have something lacking. Not in a way that is universal. When Isaiah says, for this is who God is, and makes that statement, that statement is true at all times, for all people, in all places. When the gift of prophecy is used, it is specific and focused. But it is beneficial because it allows God to speak into the intimate moments of our life so that we know that he is present, so that we know he is working. Now, when we look at this gift, it can seem two things that I think are really important, and both of them are true. One, it can seem weird. And we've talked about this before. The spiritual gifts that God lists for us in 1 Corinthians, or in Romans, or in 1 Peter 4, or in Ephesians 4, some of them are very normal and natural things that we wouldn't even identify as being divine gifts, like the gift of service. Or maybe the gift of generosity. And then there are others that are significantly superhuman. Like a mere miraculous healing. Or the gift of tongues. Or in this case, the gift of prophecy. But it is also very, very difficult to remove the reality of this gift and its operation and its benefit from the New Testament. It is everywhere. Who is it that is there when Paul and Barnabas set out for their missionary journey in Acts chapter 13. Prophets and teachers at the book of Acts who are named and who during in prayer the Spirit spoke and said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas. When Paul was trying to figure out where to go next as he was moving around modern day Turkey and he tried to go north and it says the Spirit prohibited him and then east and the Spirit didn't let him go that way and then west and it still didn't work and then he had a vision of a man from Macedonia coming down, saying, come down this way, right? That is, that is revelatory gifts that are in operation. And I could list these, and here, Paul doesn't come in and say, look, you need to just stick to the Bible, and just, everybody has a sermon, and everyone else needs to be quiet. He says, when you come together, these things should be operating. They need to be decently done. They need to be in order. They need to be tested, but they should also be present. Do you see that? Second, not only can this seem weird, but it also seems dangerous. And some of you probably know this firsthand. We are a culture that is fully acquainted with the danger that comes with authority. And we are especially acquainted with the danger that comes with divine authority. When somebody proclaims that they speak for or represent God, it leaves them in a posture that cannot be debated. And it leaves them in a posture that can control lives and misrepresent God and do terrible damage. And so when we hear about the gift of prophecy, we go, ooh, this sounds really dangerous. And I would suggest to you that's why the proper understanding of prophecy is so important. Now, I'm going to say again, as I said last week, However you are, or wherever you are at, with this reality this morning, you need to come to a place where you value and desire the gift of prophecy to be operative in your life. Not not that you have it, necessarily, but at least that it would exist in our church. We need a whole body, with all of its members, to function in health. 
That's a place and a posture we need to get to. And I would suggest to you that prophecy in my own life has served a significant role. I'll give you the most recent account. As you all know, this year has been difficult. It's been difficult for all of us. But it's been especially difficult for me as a pastor, trying to lead and navigate through everything that we face this year. A few weeks ago, almost two months now, I was sitting down with other pastors from around the region and talking with a friend of mine who has been a missionary in India longer than I've been alive and has recently come stateside and is still serving the organization from here. We talked very briefly, and actually we didn't talk about this year much at all. But there was a time where uh, we had a time of prayer and he was laying his hand on me and he was praying for me and he turned to me afterwards and he said, Justin, I feel very strongly that the Lord wants you to know that he is pleased with you and what you've done this last year. And I just broke down right there at the table in front of 30 men and just started crying. Okay. That was a comfort that he couldn't have given me if he knew all the details and just said, you know what, it's fine. But there was a touch point between his word and my heart that validated the message. Even though, to be honest, I've been struggling to believe it for months. Okay. And that's something I would say that we need to talk about right now this morning is, what does it look like to test prophecy? If it's beneficial, what are the safeguards so that we can enjoy the benefit but sift out the danger? And I would suggest we've already covered one, which is a posture of authoritative, I speak for God, and you must listen to and do what I say, or you reject God's will for your life. He's rejected out of hand. That's just not what the gift is. But the second thing I think we can add here, uh, we see here in... Um, in verse 24 again, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed. He's convicted, he calls to account, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. One of the ways that we test prophecy is against our own heart. It's not infallible. The Bible makes very clear you can't always trust your heart. But especially that phrase, his heart is dis disclosed, right? That connects directly with the idea of revelation. Do you, do you see that? Disclosed means to reveal. Lay bare would be what an older translation would say. And the handful of times that I've encountered without hesitation the gift of prophecy. And it's not that there weren't reasons to be hesitant. The circumstances were weird. It's because of this. It's because I suddenly felt exposed and known by a total stranger. I'll give you another example. One time, um, I took a benevolence call at the church I used to work for. I talked with a woman, she told me about her needs, and I said, we don't really have anything to help right now, but Lord is your provider, so let's pray together. We prayed, it was nothing profound or simple, but afterwards she said, boy, I really feel like the Lord wants me to tell you something. And for a person who didn't know me longer than a 45-second conversation, she began to touch on things that she couldn't have known, past, present, and future, 
in a way that was evidentially confirming. Now, that being said, there are things that she has said that still are not reality, and I hold those with an open hand. Although sometimes they enter into my prayers, and I lay them before the Lord and say, is this your will for my life? You know. But it's exposing. Okay. A second thing we see that I think needs to be added to this list is that it's to be tested by the whole church. Right? And so the things that are said, first off, and we should recognize this right now, are accountable. A prophet who just anonymously slips a note under your door and runs away? Nah. When you speak and say, I feel like the Spirit is saying, you speak accountably. And sometimes that means you speak publicly. And sometimes it means you speak publicly, and while you sit there, the prophecy is weighed by the congregation. And I think this is one of the places where things go wrong. I think a large use, use of the prophecy happens in private and stays in private. And so people wrestle with things on their own. But what we see uh, in, in Paul's life, as we looked at Acts chapter 21, is that God is quite happy to send a second witness. God is quite happy to confirm the things that he is saying. He is saying. And so how does Paul know what's awaiting him in Jerusalem? Because everybody everywhere is saying, boy, the Lord is really impressed upon me that this is what's happening. And that's what Paul implies here. Notice what he says again in verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. Okay? There's, There's a participatory community aspect to this. And it is essential if prophecy is going to be handled well. Now here's something we see in some churches right now that has to be recognized. Is that great, profound, predictive statements are made. They don't come to pass. And the item is just left in the past. To the defamation of the name of Christ. And to the destruction of people's lives. I would suggest to you that falls short of testing. And not only should it test the gift, shouldn't we, according to this passage, sometimes come to people and go, you know what, you've given a word of the Lord like this many times over the last few years, and I don't think any of it has been valid. I don't think this is a gift you have. Right? If this gift doesn't say anything about your status as a Christian and doesn't give you any place of position in the church, then why wouldn't that be an okay conversation to have? It really should be. But more importantly, when these things are wrong, they have to be identified as wrong. And those of you who have ever sat under a heavy word knows why this is important. Because if it's possibly a word from God, you will carry that and carry it and carry it. And so this testing implies that things are in community defined. Yes, no. This we receive This we reject. This we handle with an open hand. Another one that I would add is patience and prayer. Like I said, even in these situations where my heart and my desires and potentially my future have been laid bare, I have continued to hold them with an open hand. It reminds me of what happens with Elijah. I've always thought this story was really interesting. So here Elijah has been praying that it would not rain, and it hasn't done so for three years. There's been a famine in Israel. And then God says, I'm going to make it rain. Tell the king it's going to rain. 
And he does both of those things. It's what he does next that I think is interesting. He gets down on his knees and he prays for rain. You ever thought about that before? Is that a lack of faith? Is Elijah going, I don't really believe this is going to happen. God, I just said this. My whole reputation is on the line. Please. I don't think that's what it is. I think there's a direct correlation between revelation and prayer. I think when we say amen, let it be, which is what amen, let it be as you have said, that's appropriate. And so these things that are untested in my life because they are still future, they are places that I continuously lay before the Lord in prayer. And they should be in these things too. The more significant or heavier or bigger the word, the more I would suggest that should be part of the process. So, it needs to be tested by Scripture. We've already labeled that one. If it doesn't fit with the general revelation of Scripture, it should be rejected. If it doesn't connect with your heart and there's no witness, Pastor Chuck Smith, you know, at the beginning of Calvary Chapel used to say, I probably get every couple of months a guy who calls me and says, the Lord's told him I'm going to die and to prepare a coffin. And he said, I always respond in the same way. He's like, well, I'm listening to the Lord, and he hasn't told me that. And again, this isn't a science, but that doesn't mean that there isn't order and organization to it. And in some senses, the math is pretty simple. Prophecy is a testimony of the fact that God wants to speak today to his church. If we desire to hear him, and we follow the guidelines here, in general, that's exactly what's going to happen. And when this gift functions well, it can be a constant source of comfort, conviction, edification. All right. Now let me just add one more thing. One of Paul's concerns here in this chapter is that things should be done in order. That's what he says in a couple of places. So he says this. He says in verse 32, The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And then notice what he says at the very end of the chapter there in verse 40, but all things should be done decently and in order. Okay. Now I would suggest to you again, this might be a place where the gift of prophecy and the office of prophet in the Old Testament differ. Because when Jeremiah gets his message, he goes, nope, I'm not saying a thing. And he can't, right? He says the message burned within him. So we can almost imagine him trying to bite his tongue and then just blurting out, thus says the word of the Lord. That's not what's going on here. You can't excuse interrupting a service or blasting someone out of nowhere or these types of things and say, well, the Lord made me do it. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not how this gift works. It's not an overwhelming of your personality. It's not... A, uh, it, is, it involves you, and you can't remove you out of it, right? And so it should be orderly. And so, here's just kind of some closing remarks. One, the only way that the church can use this gift well is to practice it and engage in sifting and discernment and even experimentation. I just don't think you can escape that. This has never been, nor will it ever be, safely a thing where you just throw a switch and it just takes care of itself. It has to, it has to be tested. So 
related to that too. You have to create safe spaces where we wait on the Lord and ask Him to speak, believe that He says He's the type of God who speaks, and listen. And we need to do it in a way where we don't foolishly take everything that's said as being the very Word of God, but also in a way where we're not completely suspect. Twice in the New Testament, we are told not to give the gifts the boot. The first time's here in 1 Corinthians. He says near the end, verse 39, So my brothers earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. You can't just give it the boot. You can't just say, this is not going to happen. It's too weird. It's too messy. In the same way, though, we saw this already in 1 Thessalonians. Do not despise the gift of prophecy. Isn't that interesting? Here's the church in Corinth that has overused the gifts and hasn't had any order. And here's this church in Thessalonica, and they've gone, oh, you know, we're a little bit more conservative. That's a little far. And he goes, hey, don't do that. Don't just set it aside. Okay. And so we need to create safe places and step out in faith as a community with safeguards in place to see where this gift might be present. Okay. To benefit from it. To grow in our ability to test the spirits and discern the message and to hear from the Lord. And that's a very good reason to join us tonight for our night of worship. Because that's primarily what we seek to do, is not just worship the Lord, but to sit at his feet, to listen for his voice, and to grow in our use of the gifts. And so I would encourage you to come out and join us tonight. And I'm not going to say that there won't be weird stuff, because trust me, I have seen some weird stuff. I still remember when a woman in the church that I was a part of, who had at one time shown up to church in a wedding dress and walked down the aisle, head, uh, you know, left foot together, right foot together, the whole way, bouquet in hand, to the front row in the middle of the sermon. This same woman in a prayer meeting once, all of a sudden, pulled out of her purse a tiny piano about the size of my hand, had six notes, but it played, and a megaphone. <laughs> And they both became a part of the prayer meeting in very significant and video-recorded ways, quietly, you know, like this. Um, so I'm not going to say there's not going to be weird things. But let me just add one more layer, okay? It seems very clear to me that the way the New Testament talks about this gift, because it's supposed to function in the context of community, we need to watch out for people who identify themselves as prophets of the Lord and have no community. Because I meet these people all the time who call me up or send me a letter or an email because they have a word from the Lord. And the first question I always ask them is, where's your home church? And I'm telling you, they never have one. And it has become a defining characteristic and evidence to them of their prophetic gifting because they have been rejected. Foolishness. And foolishness we shouldn't subject ourselves to. So I never, I never read the rest of those emails. If they can't answer that question, I leave it alone. Okay. We can only use the gifts accountably and together. But when we do that, we can grow in our ability to use them well, and we can grow in the benefit of the gifts when they're fully functioning. And I know it's weird with prophecy, but it's the same thing with teaching. You can have the gift of teaching and still need to do a lot of growing. You can have the gift of teaching and still have somebody put their arm around you afterwards and go, hey, we need to talk. Okay. 
That's exactly what Paul tells Timothy, is to stir up the gifts that are within it. And like we've talked about, there's a range here where there are happening gifts. And so maybe you don't have the gift of prophecy, but he gives you the gift of a prophecy in a moment. There are recurring gifts, and then there are offices. And even that, I can't remove from the New Testament. There really are prophets. Agabus was one of them. And I assume what that means is that they have a proven and continuous track record of really hearing from the Lord. We should desire that that's functioning in the world that we live in. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll close with this, that God appointed and gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for ministry. If we have people functioning in this gift in our church, we will not just feel better, we will not just feel closer to the Lord, we will be stronger as a body. And that's a reason to be open to this gift and even to ask for it. So let's pray. God, one of the things that's striking when we read the Bible is that it covers 4,000 years of history where you show up, sometimes uninvited, and begin speaking to people. You become participants in their life. You open doors, and you provide guidance. And sometimes, even more than just your providence or just your voice, you give visions, and you give dreams. And we want to stand on this anniversary of Pentecost this morning and say, If the promise of Joel was fulfilled by the gift of the Spirit from the hands of Jesus Christ, and that you desire to pour out your Spirit on all types of people in our church, young and old, poor and rich, no matter their status or their background, not just pastors but lay people, if you desire to do that, Lord, so that your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, and your young men see vision, and we say, Lord, Send it. But we also know that we are fully capable of hijacking good gifts, of aping the power of God, of seeking to be the king of our own kingdoms, of being subject to people just because they bully us, of all these things. And so we ask for your help. We pray, Lord, as a community, that we would be open to these things, but committed to order and edification we would be slow and patient and prayerful. We would be encouraging in one another to try and use gifts even when they seem beyond the pale, even when they seem um, out of reach. And that we would continue, like Paul says here, to earnestly desire the gifts, especially that we may prophesy. So we just present ourselves exactly where we're at before you. And again, we recognize that Jesus not only paid for our sins, not only invited us into the family of God, but has provided his Holy Spirit so that we can do the work that you've called us to do. And we long for what it says here, Lord, that there be those who do not yet know you in our midst, who when they encounter the reality of your voice, say, surely this is a place where God is present. We just ask that you would do all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue our service with worship.